Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. There's a cockstep coming into the evenings. An optimist by nature, my grandmother liked making this pronouncement each year. She was referring to the extra light in the sky as we move from winter solstice towards spring brightness. She could feel that stirring in the air, something very faint and very subtle but nonetheless tangible. She knew the clockwork belly of the earth was shifting, gathering its breath, somewhat like the movement of a timepiece as it prepares to strike the hour. The creep is gradual, but she was attuned to it. When I think about her now, she might rightly be described as a wise woman. Minimally educated, yet she observed the world about her with great curiosity, marvelled at its complexity and thus came to a heightened understanding of nature. Anyone who has observed the arrogant strut of a cockerel in a hen run will know the length of a cockstep and easily equate it to the glide of evening light as measured by my grandmother. She read the weather by assaying the smoke from her chimney. High pressure signalled by straight emissions and low pressure when the same smoke fell to the ground. Rain on the way if there were caps of cloud on distant sleeve Naman and thus no point in hanging sheets on the line. She was also an observer of the moon and its cycles. I marvelled how she would suggest seed sowing in conjunction with its phases. This is a time of year when I like to sit and contemplate seed catalogues with a view to a new season of vegetable growing. Having experienced poor cropping and indeed complete failures in recent times, I believe I should try my grandmother's belief in seed sowing under the influence of a full moon. Proponents of my grandmother's theory suggest that just as the moon's gravitational pull influences the tides, it also has an effect on soil moisture, pulling it towards the surface. Some seeds perform better when they're exposed to light, so planting during the full moon could perhaps enhance the process. Certain phases of the moon are considered conducive to planting. Moon-based planting guides suggest sowing seeds for crops that yield an above-ground harvest when the moon is waxing. Root crops, on the other hand, are best sown during a waning moon. My grandmother studied the calendar of the moon and its cycles in the pages of Old Moore's Almanac. Throughout the seasons, she made sure the book was close to hand, and I recall how dog-eared and tea-stained it became as the months progressed. She bought a fresh copy each year from a street trader in our town. Moll Daly liked to perch on the window ledge of the post office in the main street and sold, amongst other things, issues of the green-covered almanac. It was not unusual for peddlers to sell copies of the book. Back then, many considered that it brought good luck to the purchaser. The almanac was devised and published by a teacher of classics and mathematics called Theophilus Moore in Dublin in 1764. It gave details of tides and moons and was considered invaluable to both farmers and fishermen. It also made predictions of important and disastrous happenings. For example, it might foretell of wars, the death of popes, 
calamitous weather events, horoscopes, and remarkable as it might sound, some of these prophecies came to pass. The almanac is on sale right up to present times. Moll and my grandmother had a few things in common. Both were considered accurate soothsayers. And in the way my grandmother might augur rain, Moll was also gifted with a form of prophecy. Her husband, known as the Ducker, had developed a sideline amusement during fair days. He would crouch inside a wooden barrel. Moll sold to willing spectators rubber balls which they would throw at the Ducker whenever he popped his head out of the barrel. The Ducker was a survivor of the Great War and a rubber ball represented little danger in comparison to bombardment in the trenches. Still, many suspected that his escapes occurred as a result of a pre-arranged series of Moll's coughs. These may have helped the above-barrel appearances be less damaging to his health. My copy of the 2024 Almanac predicts that a so-called warm moon will occur on March the 25th. It is known as such because warming soil temperature entices earthworms to become active. The wolf moon of January and the snow moon of February might be a little too early for my seed sowing and perhaps the pink moon of April too late for purpose. But occurring as it does after the March equinox and many cock steps into the year, the full warm moon of March might be a signal to get dirt under my fingernails for yet another growing season. It's not easy to photograph the shark-like fish known as the flapper skate. At three metres wide, wingtip to wingtip, it's a challenge to fit one inside the shot, especially when you're on a small boat, legs backed against wet fibreglass, abandoning your upper body to the air, when leaning any further back will likely topple you into the Irish Sea. But we're jumping ahead. To photograph a flapper skate... First, you need to catch one. It was mid-June and the sea was unusually still. A flat calm, or in technical terms, a sea state zero. The boat was the wee gem, and in it my companions Ronald and Ian were cramming tackle boxes next to oil skins and lunch bags. I wobbled on board and felt, I can't help but say it, out of my depth. I was the marine biologist for this trip and supposedly the expert among us, but I hadn't even been on a boat for five years. Ronald and Ian were the anglers, the ones who spent every possible minute on the water, the ones who knew where to find the skate. We headed northeast towards the Maidens, a collection of islets off the Antrim coast and a good place, Ronald said, to catch bait. 
On the way, I showed him the first skate images returned from sea long before photography. In a 16th century hoax, skate bodies were deliberately deformed, dried and brought ashore by sailors claiming they had found angels, demons or monsters. The true story of the flapper skate is less magical. It's a story of overfishing, population collapse and desperate conservation attempts. I clutched my camera and watched the swell rise. We were hunting the largest skate in the world, in one of the last places they were believed to survive. A photograph could help to confirm that, providing evidence that they were not yet lost from this coast. The image I was after had paperwork behind it, declarations to the government about the experience of each person on board, certificates of training in handling techniques. There are so few flapper skate left that you must hold a licence even to photograph one. The day passed gently. Seals rose around us, watched us for a while and slipped away. The boat rocked on low waves and occasionally we moved position. By early evening, we were at our third skate mark, the name given to fishing sites where skate are often found. The other marks, it seemed, had been empty. Ian threw back an undersized mackerel and we decided to go home. That is when we noticed the skate rod bending absurdly towards the water. Ian grabbed the harness. An adult flapper skate can weigh over 100 kilograms, about the same as a baby elephant. Its jaws are designed to crush shell and can remove a finger just as easily. While Ronald secured Ian to the boat, he explained to me that landing the skate could take a full 20 minutes. It seemed longer. I watched the grey waves and the quivering rod. I watched Ian's face, intent and strained. I waited for the line to break and the monster, the angel, to dissolve into the dark sea. Then a glimmer underwater, something pale metres from the surface rising towards us. The skate seemed composed, stately even, and for a moment... I regretted our intent to extract her, though only briefly, in the name of scientific endeavour. And yet, if the skate population had been healthier, we would not have been there. The species is classed as critically endangered. The next stage is extinct in the wild. Time was tight. It took both men to carry the skate on deck, and the second she was there, I got to work, measuring, scribbling down frantic numbers. I grabbed my camera and began backing towards the side of the boat. She didn't fit in the viewfinder, so I edged back again until I was as far as I could go, then I leaned back some more over the gunwale. The skate lay calmly on the deck, her long nose towards the camera, her eyes dark and still. A few clicks, another with Ian sitting by her tail. Then arms were under her, slowly lifting, and she was lowered back into the sea. The skate floated at the surface briefly, then with a flick and a flash of white, she was gone. The boat turned towards the coast and I scanned through the image thumbnails. Me, 
one hand placed on her wing, the other holding a tape measure. Ian crouching by her tail, grinning madly. The skate, alone on the deck, the end of each wing just inside the frame. Photographs for campaigning, photographs as trophies, but most importantly, photographs as data, as evidence of an all-but-mythic creature which, thanks to the efforts of local anglers, may now not be lost. La We sat in our camper van in the car park of an Aldi superstore in the outskirts of Longford, waiting. On either side of us sat many others in cars and vans, also waiting. We travelled over a hundred miles to pick up our consignment and it was now half an hour overdue. Tracking our contacts movement on Facebook, we learned of roadworks in Mullingar, cows on the road outside Ballymahan. As the minutes ticked by, my husband's fidgeting increased. I ignored it. I was not leaving without my cargo. A squealing of tyres broke the silence as a van, speckled with the muck of country roads, bounced its way over speed bumps into the car park and pulled up across three parking spaces just behind us. Everyone opened their car doors, cardboard boxes in hand. We finally acknowledged each other. Now we were all in this together. An enormous man with flaming red hair and impressive sideburns jumped out of the van and went around the back of the vehicle. He pulled open the back door and our senses were assailed, first by the smell, second by the sound. Cages upon cages of pale hens, many missing their feathers, lay stacked within. Their short lives had been filled with so much stress and uncertainty that they barely registered our presence but they raised a muted chatter and kept up a monotonous keening sound. Destined for the slaughterhouse at a young age, they had been saved by Little Hill Animal Rescue, who specialise in rehoming commercial laying hens and giving them a second chance at life. This delivery was one of many they were carrying out that day. Looking around at the small crowd of people gathered at the rear of the van, I felt proud and part of something good. I handed over my donation and Big Red took out eight hens and put them in my large, straw-strewn cardboard box. Away from the confines of the cages, they looked even more pathetic, but the moment they had a little bit of space, they perked up and began to show curiosity, experimental babble coming out of their beaks as if they knew they might just be safe at last. We loaded them into the van and drove off. My other half silently wondering, I was certain, if the splats that were coming hard and fast would seep through the box to the carpet of his beloved camper van. The hens chattered all the way back to Connemara and I chattered back. Sometimes my husband looked at me like I'd lost my mind, and maybe I had, but a little eccentricity never hurt anyone. 
When we got home, we placed the box in the chicken run and set it on its side. Watching these eight timid creatures take their first steps into freedom was incredibly emotional. As caged hens, they can't have walked any distance before, can never have pecked at a blade of grass or felt the breeze on their skin. They are sentient beings with individual personalities, personalities that we were to watch develop fully and loudly over the subsequent weeks. Within days of their new diet and exercise regime, tiny quills like needles emerged from their skin, eventually unfurling into feathers. Their eyes brightened, their combs began to change from pale pink to bright red. We gave names to two only. Wonky, whose comb fell theatrically over one eye and who had an elegant strut and attitude to match her appearance. Bridie, the baldest and most bad-tempered hen, reminded us of an elderly, bewigged woman we once knew, small in stature but with a personality that belied her size and who caused havoc wherever she went. I cannot fully explain the joy I experienced from seeing these little creatures transform from egg-laying machines into vibrant, carefree animals. They give us eight eggs a day, with yolks so rich and creamy they have garnered quite the reputation in the neighbourhood. I was in the greenhouse recently, pulling up the last of the tomato plants, when my husband passed by, carrying some aeroboard and a large roll of tinfoil. Intrigued, I popped my head out as he entered the hen run and watched as he set about fitting out the nesting box with his makeshift insulation. There you go, I heard him say to the ladies, totally unaware that I was earwigging. This'll make you nice and warm when the nights are frosty. Tashiv Sloan, Savalja and Ishakalini. And they gossiped happily in return, jumping up and crowding round him to see what he was doing. My heart swelled a little as I looked at this big, strong man conversing with eight Rhode Island Reds. Looks like this egg-centricity is catching. Have you ever been stung by a jellyfish? It's a nasty experience, but it's just the beginning. There is an idea, jellyfish apocalypse theory, that suggests in a lifeless ocean, swarms of gelatinous creatures will be all that remain. Ghosts, lingering in the void, left by the squids and the sea stars, nudibranchs and narwhals, jellyfish will be the shadow of consciousness in a dark blue sea. Fluid packs of neurons throbbing to the beat of their own directionless march, nothing left to sting. Warming seas hasten the jellyfish apocalypse, offering a hospitable habitat for their hauntings. They thrive in the oxygen-poor oceans of the future. The jellyfish judgment is near. This gooey horror is one that humankind will probably avoid as part of the extinction cohort. 
but we do like our dystopian fictions and jellyfish make a suitably unagreeable anti-hero. They are just irritating enough, their translucent beauty surpassed by the reputation of their sting. And in the past decade, they've dropped hints at world domination. A Swedish nuclear reactor risked overheating when its cooling system was obstructed by a jellyfish swarm in 2013. The same fate befell a US warship that drifted for days off the Australian coast as jellyfish blocked its engines. They are shape-shifting, volatile, threatening global security with their soggy mass. But I have started thinking about jellyfish on more affectionate terms. As gentle observers that accumulate an elemental wisdom of the sea. I grew up by the Atlantic in northwest Donegal and it is here that I have had most of my jellyfish encounters. I found one, washed on the sand, an inky globule coloured with such purity that it appeared to be a distillate of the ocean itself, a blue elixir that was certain to possess alchemical magic. I became so entranced by jellyfish that I started to learn their patterns and my days were governed by the same tides that might bring them ashore. My fixation grew from hyperlink to hyperlink as I tumbled through web pages. Box jellyfish have a set of 24 eyes and might be older than dinosaurs. There is a jellyfish capable of immortality. There is a jellyfish that weighs 200 kilos. I contemplated a jellyfish tattoo on my lower leg. But, as is often the case with runaway obsession, reality slapped me on the face. Or rather, a jellyfish did. I was swimming hard on Marble Hill Beach in Sheephaven Bay. Fixated on my own stroke, I barely saw it sweep by, dark stripes radiating from the edge of its smooth body. Compass jellyfish, strikingly horrible. The pain of the sting came slowly, but it grew rampant. It started at my mouth and cut along my nose, screaming in the groove of my upper lip. I thrashed towards the beach and ripped off the goggles that had saved my eyes. The sunlight blinded them shut. Gripping my face, I tried to squeeze out the pain. Jellyfish tentacles are made of tiny stinging cells that hook onto the skin and inject a potent neurotoxin. I staggered along the beach. I cursed the damned creature as its poison seeped through my nervous system, pain edging down my neck and my spine. Swearing, stopping, breathing hard, my head grew light with panic. There were lifeguards at the other end of the beach and I lurched towards them, but then felt ashamed to be making a fuss about a mere jellyfish sting. I slumped onto the sand, head clenched between my legs. Vicious, nasty creature. Did it not understand how I revered it? Was my deep curiosity so easily unappreciated? I had shrouded its ugliness with mystery, constructed a version that captivated my thoughts. I had presumed to set the terms of our relationship. Had it all been in vain? Wikipedia told me that some jellyfish are capable of consciousness. Have they no capacity for empathy? Even if they do, what would they care?
they're going to rule the world. After some time, the ache in my back withdrew and I opened my eyes. A plain reality seeped in to replace the shock. I had pursued my own selfish interest and the jellyfish had responded in the only way it could. Humans are curious, jellyfish sting. This one had taken control of my body as it and its companions will do the oceans. There is no way to escape the jellyfish apocalypse. They are coming for us. The best remedy for a jellyfish sting is seawater, so I returned to the shore and swam past the break line, wary of another attack. Awe and fear are not unalike. My fantasy had lasted a few short weeks of summer, all gone with a single callous sting. Bill, one of my travel companions during our first trip to Ireland in 1984, was a bird watcher. Not by profession, not at all. He was a law student from Amsterdam who just happened to have an active interest in nature. He had been involved in bird watching from a very young age in the polder landscape south of Rotterdam, where we and our other companion Jochem had attended secondary school. Bill had reliable info that the white-throated dipper was a common enough bird to be found near streams and rivers in Ireland, and he was determined to sight at least one specimen during a three-week hike through Clare and Galway. Joachim and I tried to help, our untrained eyes mistaking anything with wings for the elusive bird. But no matter how hard he looked, Bill never got to see the dipper along any of the many picturesque waterways we came across in those three weeks. I was reminded of that historic hike as I strolled by the banks of another waterway the other day, the River Dodder, in the Milltown area of South Dublin. It takes less than half an hour to walk the short stretch between the Droppingwell pub and the bridge at Alexandra College and back again, but it provides a treasure trove of fascinating bits of history on both sides of the river. The iconic old railway bridge, built in 1854, stood idle for years when the Harcourt railway line was closed, until the Lewis gave it a new lease of life. Right beside it, the solitary red brick chimney stack of a long-forgotten laundry towers above the bridge. Nestled beside the dropping well is Classen's Bridge, widened 1928, it says, and if you follow the footpath under the bridge, you can clearly see the original arch at about half the width of the newer structure. But there's another, much smaller bridge that was never widened. The Packhorse Bridge is more than 350 years old, and as its name suggests, its cobbled crossing allowed load-carrying horses to bring their cargo from bank to bank in the days long before their iron successors took over that job on the Nine Arches. Pedestrians could squeeze out of the way of oncoming equestrian traffic in a small recess in the parapet, like a tiny balcony overlooking the water. 
Other historical gems are less easily recognized. A tall cast iron pole that looks like a headless lamppost displays the year 1911 on its pot-bellied base. As it turns out, this is a so-called sewer vent, and a few of its colleagues can still be found in the area. It seems they are now unemployed, with some unseen modern technology sparing us the smell of what flows beneath. Just a few paces away, the water noisily rushes over a weir in the river, like a miniature waterfall. Tucked away just above the weir, we find what looks like a cast-iron gate, with rusted cogs and levers, looking down on a long stone trough leading to the waterfall. This obscure contraption is part of the former mill that gave this area its name, and the trough is what was known as the mill race. All this is located next to the narrow park that follows the fluvial flow. Like the scattered pews of some secular open-air church, park benches are dedicated to the memory of somebody's loved one, who enjoyed their walks by the riverside in more recent times. But it's not these reminders of the past that make me think of that first trip to Ireland all those years ago. The fact is that the dollar is popular with birdwatchers, and even amateurs like me quickly realised that there's quite an avian variety on offer. Hidden in the rich foliage beside the stream stands a heron, stuck still in the hope of catching lunch. Cormorants spread out their wings to dry, high up on top of the laundry's chimney. Yellow wagtails dart back and forth along the length of the river. Blink and you miss them. I am told that the kingfisher can often be seen here, but in all the times I've walked this walk, scanning the water and the banks, I've only ever seen a kingfisher on a picture, stapled to a tree by some show-off photographer. Standing on the Packhorse Bridge, looking towards the Nine Arches, I see something else, though. On a rock in the water below me, a small, dark bird with a white bib nervously jumps around, taking sips of water whenever he reckons it's safe to do so. There you go, Bill, I say to myself. There's a dipper by the daughter. Saint Hugh, a hermit saint, Bioe, lively Hugh, lived on an island in Loch Allen, first bright lake of the River Shannon. Such blue he must have seen, such blackness of rain on the Iron Mountain, such eel and drifts of swan to the hazel shore. Like Adam, after Eden, his name seeded in the land around long after his bones were laid to dust the lovely round sound of A becoming hue as one language ceded to another. The trace of memory held in tradition, son named after father or grandfather, the lively roll of language clear behind the mist of burned history. Hugh McHugh drives a blue Volkswagen. He ferries my mother to and from the doctor, delivers her to the psychiatric hospital in Sligo, brings her home safe and sane to a wounded house.
Sometimes he'll take a glass of putchin. His laugh is like a bubble of oxygen. Huey Johnny was Hugh Woods, my grandfather, pale as a ghost and a whisper off a hundred when he gave in. Stoic smoker in his hard chair by the Rayburn stove, flesh shadow in the faint light, crippled by a broken hip, a cow's kick at seventy-eight, the bone setting crooked at home. Never a word of complaint, only talk of all the hods he carried in New York and Edinburgh. His brown eyes glinted bright. He loved whisky. Hugh McPadden, his brother-in-law, sipped gin against pain, waiting high up on the hill for the doctor with his catheter to bring relief. From the front door he could see the lake and the old monastery. The graveyard which he tended like a garden, the islands drifting like giant pike in the water. I imagine his eyes were green. He stares across the mountain to Fermanagh, remembers his brother James, the years working as a farm labourer near Enniskillen, the hiring fairs. Years on again, Hugh Nolan in Ballymanone spins the future out of dust. And you, Hugh, my brother, stronger than Adam, I am seven again, and my heart soars with dint of love as I turn the bend at Curris Hill and see your car waiting. I make the lice on my scalp jump for joy as we race to find you, past the hazel wood, past the graveyard road, past the river, the red apples shining in the decaying orchard. On this morning's programme, we heard The Cockstep of Light by Joe Kearney. Capturing the Flapper's Gate was by Rebecca Hunter. Contagious Eccentricity by Fiona Highland. Tentacular Winter, Jellyfish Apocalypse was by Alexander McMaster. The Dipper by the Dodder by Peer Cowpers. And Saint Hugh, a poem by Vincent Woods. The music was Moonlight Serenade by Glenn Miller and his orchestra. La Mer by Charles Trenet, sung by Melanie Horsnell. Chick, 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 chicken, lay a little egg for me by Ted Weems and his orchestra. From Sanson's Carnival of the Animals, The Aquarium, featuring pianists Jean-Francois Heiser and Victoria Posnikova and Flute Flight by Hetour Villalobos, played by Judith Hall on flute and Tim Walker on guitar. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And a reminder that an anthology of 150 scripts heard in recent years on this programme is currently in shops. Sunday Miscellany, a selection, 2018 to 2023, is published by New Island Books. You can find more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or the programme website. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.